0: The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. It's a story about uh, this group of travelers that's going from uh, Southwark, England, to Canterbury to go to a shrine in Canterbury in England. And Canterbury's famous not just because it's a part of the Canterbury Tales, but because it was the home of the Bishop of England in Canterbury. And only uh, 300 years before Chaucer read his story, A famous bishop named uh, Bishop Anselm lived in Canterbury. And Anselm is famous because of a book he wrote with the Latin title, Cure Deus Homo. And in this book, Anselm said something that uh, Christians hadn't said before, and that was that in the death of Jesus, uh, Jesus had become a payment to God. Before Anselm, a lot of Christians have thought that in the death of Jesus, he became a payment to Satan. But Anselm was one of the first theologians to say it's not a payment to Satan, this is a payment to God himself. And what I want you to think about as we read the passage is, how does this passage show us that Jesus' death is in fact a sacrifice to God and a payment to God? We're in Mark 15 this morning. Verses 33 through 39, and this is the death of Jesus. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, Lima Sabachthana, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, "Behold, he's calling on Elijah." And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine—sour wine, excuse me—put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, "Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down." And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would be present with us this morning. We pray that You would uh, convict us of our own sinfulness, that You would... Glorify yourself that you would make my words not my own wisdom but the wisdom of God. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Well, those of you here this morning who are Christians, you might remember when it was that you first became a Christian. I remember when I first became a Christian a little over 10 years ago at the University of Alabama. I was a freshman and You might also remember what you were like before you became a Christian. I remember what I was like. I was desperately searching to know God, to experience God in my life. And I read books about different religions, and I was one of these people that, uh, you know, might wear tie-dye shirts all the time and listen to sitar music and and i was doing this all in rural alabama remember if my parents had allowed me to have a bumper sticker on my car my freshman year i'm sure it would have been the, the 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 coexist bumper stickers with the cute little symbols you've seen them but i was looking for god everywhere i desperately longed to know him But I couldn't find him anywhere. Well, it was a culture a lot like this and a mindset a lot like this that was during Jesus' time, during his ministry. the The Roman Empire during Jesus' time was full of folks looking for God. They were tired of the traditional religions. They were tired of the old Greek gods. The kind of gods you read about in Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology, you know, in Clash of the Titans, the movie. But folks, during this time, were looking for God everywhere. And it was into this time that Mark's gospel that we're in this morning was written. The church has always believed Mark to be the author of this gospel, and that he wrote it uh, somewhere in between 60 and 70 A.D. And this date is very important. Because it was in 70 A.D. that the Roman army marched into Jerusalem and leveled, completely leveled, the Jewish temple. This was the center of Jewish religion, where the Jews believed that God's presence still dwelled. uh, Where they believed that they could find God in the temple. And the Romans uh, knocked it to the ground completely. This is important because what ended in the leveling of the temple by the Roman army began right here in the passage that we're looking at this morning when God ripped this curtain in two from the top all the way to the bottom. Um, The curtain in the temple during this time, there were actually two of them. One of the curtains separated the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple where God appeared, from the rest of the temple. The other curtain would have separated uh, the Jewish part of the temple from the non Jewish part of the temple. And it says in verse uh, 38 that this, temp- that this curtain was torn from top to bottom, but Mark doesn't tell us which curtain. He's basically ambiguous about it. And I think that's because, in a sense, it doesn't matter which one it was because, although on two different levels, both of these curtains were doing the same thing. They were keeping men and women from the presence of God and the innermost Holy of Holies. And all this is happening only about a half a mile from where Jesus, it says, breathed His last and died. You know, it's not like the temples on one side of Greenville and... Jesus is dying on the other side. These events are all happening within a half a mile of each other. It's basically like the downtown area we're talking about. And Jesus is being crucified up on a hill from which if you look down at Jerusalem, you could see the temple from this hill. But What Mark wants us to see is that it's Jesus' death that has caused this temple curtain to be ripped in half something that would end with the whole temple itself being destroyed. And so the question that I want us to try and get at this morning is, why would God destroy this curtain and eventually allow the Roman uh, army to destroy the whole temple if it was something that God had commanded them to build in the first place? Um, And what I think Mark will show us from the passage is that This curtain was torn down because Jesus had become the real temple. Jesus becoming the real temple had made the old one um, obsolete. Had meant that it must be destroyed because something far better had come along. All because Jesus, when He had died on the cross, uh, became a temple so much better than the old one. He became the temple sacrifice, uh, the temple priest, um, the protection that the temple offered. And so I want to try and look at three things this morning. The first is how does Jesus both validate Jewish sacrifice but put it into it? How does He both uh, validate the, the temple, the Jewish temple priesthood, but also put it into it? How does He validate uh, the protection that the Jews got from having the temple? But yet, how does he destroy the protection that the temple offered? So first, how does Jesus validate and destroy the Jewish sacrifice? Um, Well, we talked about how the temple was the presence of God through priest and sacrifice. So how did Jesus uh, validate sacrifice? Well, think about what he was doing 24 hours before he died in this passage. Twenty-four hours before he died, Christ was celebrating the Passover meal. And the Passover was the remembrance of how God passed over the firstborn of Israel when he judged the firstborn of Egypt. And Jesus is celebrating this meal with his disciples. And rather than say, now that I'm here, we're going to do away with that idea of sacrifice. He doesn't say, you know, sacrifice, that's obsolete. That was then, this is now, I'm here. No, he affirms it when he says, this blood, this blood that came from a lamb, that we're celebrating in the Passover meal, this will be my blood. I'm the one who will pour out my blood for many. I will be the blood of the covenant. He plays up the Jewish idea of sacrifice. Uh, The second thing is that Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it of which uh, the Jewish sacrificial system would have been preeminent in the law. Uh, The third thing was that he said, I didn't come to be served, but to give my life as a ransom for many. And finally, the darkness. um, If you look in verse 33, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This darkness around Jesus was the very uh, darkness that had appeared in the temple. When the sacrifices were given, affirming the idea of sacrifice. Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to do away with the idea of sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. So he validates it. But how does he also um, assure the destruction of the Jewish sacrificial system? He assures its destruction because his sacrifice was infinitely better, infinitely superior... For one, because his sacrifice was a personal sacrifice of a man created in the image of God. In verse 34, uh, he quotes the Psalms and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthana," which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And folks who read the Old Testament just for literature, not because they believe it's God's Word, but folks who read it in this way still agree that the Psalms get the human experience better than anything else. The Psalms have the lowest of the lows and the highest of the highs of human experience. And Jesus is quoting the Psalms to remind us that He's not uh, suffering as, as an animal would, but suffering as a man would. Feeling the things that we feel, going through suffering that, like we have undergone. Um, So he's superior in that way. He's also superior because his sacrifice was uh, the sacrifice of an innocent man who never sinned, always loved God, always loved his neighbor. But his sacrifice was superior because he wasn't just a man, but he was man and God. Jesus had taught in the temple in the Gospel of Mark. He says... The Messiah isn't just David's son, but the Messiah is David's Lord. But as a sacrifice, He's not just a man, but He's divine. Um, In Jesus' ministry, He shows that He's divine by doing things like forgiving sins. Uh, He controls the weather and He calms storms. Jesus' temptations show that He was God. He was tempted to do things like uh, turn rocks into bread. You know, I'm never going to be tempted to do that. Only God could be tempted to turn a rock into a loaf of bread. And His sacrifice was superior because He was both God and man as our sacrifice. And at the climax of His sacrifice, He cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? And I think we sometimes think of what Jesus went through on the cross a bit like, how I remember getting a shot at the doctor when I was a little boy you know when when the time came to get a shot and my mother would reassure me look everything is going to be okay I'm going to be with you but that didn't matter because when I saw that needle that that doctor had it looked like a sword to me but when I saw that needle I thought "I I better make up my will as a six year old because I'm I'm never going to live through this experience. But my mother held my hand, and she sat there with me and told me that everything is going to be okay. And she stayed with me. And that's fine for us. But that's not what Jesus experienced on the cross. That's not what what the plain uh, language of His cry tells us that he experienced being completely forsaken, completely handed over to the wrath of God. This is why the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. And theologians go round and round about what that means, but they all agree that it at least describes what he experienced on the cross. Handed over to Satan and his kingdom and all his devices, And that in some mysterious way, he lost the assurance of God's love. Even as he called to God as his God, he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the reason that his sacrifice had to put an end to the Jewish system of sacrifices. Because something so much better, so much greater had come that the old had to be put away. Uh, the new wine made it so that those old wineskins were now useless and had to be thrown away. And that temple curtain was ripped in two, symbolizing the end of that system. So he both affirms and puts an end to sacrifice. But how does he both affirm and put it an into the Jewish idea of priesthood? Well, we've talked about how the priesthood um, was instituted by God in the Old Testament so that Israel could enter in to the direct presence of God in the Holy of Holies vicariously through the priest as he offered sacrifices for sins. The rest of Israel couldn't go behind the Holy of Holies. And the priests were only allowed to do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, it talks about this. No doubt that they, you know, they thought about priests the way that we might think of astronauts. These men who can go where no, no one else can go. Um, they go to this place that uh, we're surprised if they even come back to live to tell the tale. And like astronauts, when they get back, we want to know all about it. What was it like in there? What did you experience? Tell me all about it. So that I might imagine what it would be like for me to dwell behind that veil in the holy of holies and the presence of the infinite and the eternal and the unchangeable. So so how does Christ uh, affirm this idea of priesthood in in His own ministry? You know, Christ didn't show up and say, That's that's yesterday. Just just forget about that. Something completely new is going to happen. No, Jesus affirmed the idea. He claimed to be the priest who represents us in the presence of God. You see this at Jesus' baptism. When the heavens are ripped open and the Father's voice says, This is my beloved Son who dwells in my presence. You know, the dove comes down on him. You see it in Jesus' transfiguration as the glory shines all around him. And God looks down and says, This is my beloved son, the one that I love, the one who's always in my presence. When Jesus uh, heals the leper, he says to the leper, Go to the priest. Go to the priest and offer the prescribed sacrifices. He played up the idea of priesthood. But how did He put an end to it? Jesus put an end to the Jewish idea of priesthood by not just being the priest, but by being the very presence of God in Himself. As we've already talked about, He wasn't just a man, but He was God. Fully God. Why the Nicene Creed calls Him very God, a very God. That in Christ... We not only have someone to take us into the presence of God, but in Christ we already have the presence of God in Him. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God comes to live in our hearts. That we can have a life of fellowship with God just like that priest did. Not once a year, but 365 days a year all day long living behind the Holy of Holies and our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. And that's what Peter preaches in the book of Acts in Solomon's portico. He says, if you will turn from your sins and believe in Christ, you will have the presence of God come down into your life. That God will bring times of refreshing on you. And in this way, he put an end to to the Jewish system of priesthood. Because his priesthood was so superior, so much more amazing, that God had to rip that temple curtain into and eventually destroy the temple to say, you won't find me in the Jewish temple anymore. You will find me in Christ. The true temple. The true sacrifice. The things that they mock Jesus about reminds us of this. It's only a few verses before our passage they're mocking Christ because He had claimed that, I will destroy the temple in three days, I will rebuild it. And of course, on this day, the Jewish temple wasn't destroyed. Because since the coming of Christ, the only real temple, the only real place where we could find God would be Christ Himself. And this is so important because God had promised to give Israel protection from their enemies through the temple. Israel needed the temple. The temple was their assurance that they had something that no other nation had. The presence of God. And that God would protect them because His presence dwelt with them. But by the coming of Christ and the tearing down of the temple, God is saying, you, won't, you will not find protection by going to the Jewish temple anymore. I won't protect you by having that. But it would only be through the Son of God, through entering into the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we could enjoy the protection of Him as our King and dwelling in His kingdom. Uh, six times in the chapter. 15 of Mark, if you have a Bible in front of you, Jesus is referred to as a king over and over. In the triumphal entry, Jesus marches in as the mighty protector and conquering king, and the people cry out, Hosanna, and blessed is the coming of our father David. Blessed is the coming of his kingdom. And who is Jesus quoting as he's dying? He's quoting the greatest king who'd ever lived, the man after God's own heart, none other than King David, the great protector of Israel. Uh, the bystanders who are mocking Christ, who in verse 35 it says, Behold, he's calling on Elijah. And in verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. That whole episode had been prophesied in Psalm 69. A psalm written to be sung to a tune composed by the mighty King David. What Mark is trying to tell us by couching the crucifixion as a victory of the mighty King David is that it's in this new temple that we will now find protection of our enemies. Mark wanted to see that Jesus' whole life, He proved that He was superior in every way to Satan, that He was superior in every way to the temptations of the flesh, that they had nothing on Him. They couldn't touch Him. Because their, Satan's whole mission in Jesus' ministry was to keep Christ From dying on the cross. Satan desperately uh, tried to keep Christ from becoming this new temple in which we have the presence of God. And on the cross, Jesus proved that he was victorious, that he was more powerful than the world or the flesh or the devil, and that in him he would protect you from all of your enemies. Because he had proven himself uh, to be without rival. And victorious over, the, over them. I know kings don't get much attention on the United States. There's something, uh, they're from a bygone era. Um, but, but, but they're desperately important in the Scriptures. Because you, know, you cannot defeat Satan. Um, you cannot defeat or conquer the flesh. You can't reign over your temptations. You can't reign over the powers of the world, the powers of nations. But that's okay because Christ did. Christ reigned over the flesh as a king. He reigned over the powers of Satan. He proved that it didn't matter what the, what the Roman emperor wanted, what Pontius Pilate wanted. He was going to become the true temple as our conquering king. And this is why it's so important for us to enter into the kingdom of God, so that in His kingdom we might rest assured that He protects us from all our enemies. He is the true King in whom we can find assurance that no matter what happens to us, we are under His protection because He has no rivals and can protect us from the world and the flesh and the devil. Well, in this way, Mark wants us to see that Christ has become the true temple and the true king. And this is so amazing because no one had ever done it before, despite the fact that they had tried. King David had tried to build a temple for God. And God had said, King David, you can't do it. Now, Uzziah, the king of Israel, had tried to uh, do the work of a priest. And God had struck him with leprosy. No one had ever been a king and a priest. Uh, The true temple of God and the true protection of God. And this is what Christ did on the cross. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. And this is the great uh, thing about the centurion. This is why the centurion is so important. It says in verse 39, And when the centurion who who stood facing him, saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And this is amazing because the centurion was an enemy of God. He had helped crucify the Son of God. He was no less guilty of crucifying the Son of God than the Jews had been, or that Pontius Pilate had been. But the centurion had seen this great... Uh, temple sacrifice played out before his very eyes. The centurion had seen uh, the pitch black judgment of God come down in darkness. He had seen that judgment poured out on this innocent man when the centurion knew that it was him who deserved God's judgment. And that temple curtain had been torn in two symbolizing that the new wine, the new temple had come, and the Centurion could only cry out, "This is the Son of God. But Mark's wants, Mark wants us to ask ourselves the question of, is the Centurion's confession our confession? Because it won't do any good if Jesus is the true temple, if he's not your temple it won't do me any good or it won't do you any good if Christ is the sacrifice but He's not your sacrifice for your particular sins that make you you. Is Christ the one who's your King and whom you can rest in the midst of sin and in the midst of temptation that He has conquered it forever forever the King that offers protection for those that take refuge in Him. Because unless His sacrifice for sins is your sacrifice for your sins, you will never experience what it means to have your sins forgiven. Unless Christ as the true temple is your temple, you will never experience what it means to know God To know the infinite, to dwell in the presence of the unchangeable and the eternal. Well, on some level this morning, we all came here because we wanted to know God, to experience Him, to find Him. You know, people go looking for God in all kinds of places. Uh, people look for God at, at the bottom of, of a bottle. People look for God uh, through power and influence over others. Um, through, through making a name for themselves and distinguishing themselves over the crowd. Uh, people look for God in illicit relationships. But none of those things can offer What God offers. None of those things offer uh, the forgiveness of your sins. None of those things would take your place and absorb the judgment of God for you. None of those things would uh, bring you into the presence of God, that you might dwell with God and have fellowship with Him and have Him come and live in your heart. And none of those things can protect you from your enemies. They can't protect you from the world, or your flesh, or Satan. There's only uh, one place you can go to find that, and that is in the true temple of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, our true sacrifice, our true priest, the protector of His people. Amen. Uh, Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You loved us when we did not love You. We thank You that You loved us when we were enemies. We pray that You would help us to respond to Your grace with love and obedience, that we might become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.